one of the more delicate, awkward topics in our society is the topic of death. If you want to bring a conversation to awkward silence or at least uncomfortable moments, bring up the topic of death. Typically, a couple times each week, someone, our kids, who live elsewhere, friends, other pastors ask me, what are you preaching on Sunday? So sometimes I'll mention the text and I'll say, wow, that's really interesting. What a great passage that is. So I've told them what we've been preaching on the last few weeks. Several said, whoa, what are you thinking? Then this week when someone said, what are you preaching on? And I said, death, the basic response was, oh, awkward silence. I don't like to think about death. I'm guessing that you don't either. But it's a reality in this world, then we face the question, how are we to live in light of the reality of death? Denial of it? Avoidance as long as we can? Is the Christian view of death, how to think about death, any different from society around us? And that's what we're going to think about this morning. Today we're in the final week of a five-week series we've been calling Embodied. The first week we looked at created persons. The second week, worshiping persons. The third, gendered persons. Last week, the littlest persons. And then today, finally, dying persons. Next week, Lord willing, we'll return to the smooth waters of 1 Samuel. I'm eager for that myself. This morning, though, our passage will be in Psalm 90. So if you have a Bible, turn to the book of Psalms to Psalm 90. And you can find that on page 496 in the Bibles we provided here, page 496. So I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible, open up a Bible app so you can see the passage right in front of you today. If you're newer to reading the Bible, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers who are in chapter or Psalm 90. The smaller numbers are the verse numbers, and I'll mention those throughout our times. we work our way through the passage today. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we as a church would love to give you one. At the back of the room, there's a stack of Bibles on the table. There's a sign that says free Bibles. Please, follow the service. Stop by there. Grab one of those Bibles and take it with you as our gift to you this morning. Now, the first week of the series, we said this, that you, all people, were created by God as an embodied person to live wisely and hopefully in this world. So then since then, we've been teasing out the implications of that in various areas of life. And so it is today as we think about embodied persons, that's what we are, but these bodies that we are embodied in also are consistently failing, aging, even dying. It's what shapes or guides our exploration this morning. So Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood, they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days pass under, pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or 
even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This morning we'll see this emphasis in our text and that is live with an awareness of death and rest in the love and favor of God. Live with an awareness of death and rest in the love and favor of God. We'll look at four different parts of our text. So first we'll see the everlasting God. Second, we'll see the passing life. Third, the fallen world. And then last, the wise way. We'll spend the majority of our time actually on the fourth one. So I don't want you to get your hopes up when the first three go really fast. And you think this might be a record short sermon. I just don't want you to be despairing. But we'll spend most of our time on the fourth. So first, we see the everlasting God in verses 1 and 2. We're told this psalm was written by Moses, and we believe it to be written towards the end of his life. He had been empowered by God to lead God's people out of captivity in Egypt. They, though, had disobeyed God, so they'd spent 40 years wandering. But now, finally, they were going to be brought home to the land that God had promised them. However, Moses himself had rebelled against God, so he would not be allowed in. He would be able to look in and see the promised land, but he himself would not cross over. So here, Moses speaks, and he begins his psalm by speaking of who God is. We see verse 2, that he is the eternal God. He is from everlasting to everlasting. He has always been and always will be. And this everlasting God, we're told, is the creator God. He was from everlasting to everlasting before the mountains were brought forth or he had formed the earth. But he did come and form the earth. And we see what he had been for his people he has been throughout the generations a refuge, a home, a dwelling place for all the generations. Now, God's people at that time who were receiving this psalm they, they had no true home, but their God had been a refuge to them, even as they wandered, awaiting the land that had been promised. Friends, this is who the Lord is, the creating, everlasting refuge for his people. Friends, for we who are Christians, this is our God. Friends, this is your God, the everlasting creator who's faithfully a refuge, always faithfully a refuge for his people. For you, always a refuge for you. So we see the everlasting God. But then second, we see the passing life in verses 3 through 6. Our Lord is eternal. He is everlasting. But human lives in this world are not. We see verse 3 that Moses says, You return man to the dust. The Lord had created Adam from the dust, as we saw a few weeks ago in Genesis 2. He'd formed him from dust, given him this body, and had breathed life into him. But as a result of the sin of Adam and Eve, 
Sin had entered the world and with it death. So we see in Genesis 3.19, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. So we who are dust will in death return to dust. These bodies will. It's God's design for all of these bodies in this fallen world to return to dust. And compared to our eternal God, our lives are so very, very brief. He uses several images in text of brevity in verses 5 and 6, swept away like a flood, like a dream that passes, like grass that is renewed in the morning but fades and withers. And this is what all lives are like. It's what my life will be like. It's what your life will be like. Brief and momentary. So we see the passing life. And third, we also see the fallen world in verses 7 through 11. Why are our lives so brief? Why does death come for all? And the answer we see in our text is also the answer across the scriptures. That is because of the sin of Adam and Eve as they rebelled against the clear command of God in the garden. A consequence of this is death entered the world. It became inevitable for every person. But it's not only they who sin, but all of us. You see verse 8, our iniquities are before the Lord. Even our secret sins are seen and known And because God is perfectly righteous and just, his judgment is brought on all because of our sin, as we see in verse 7. God brings justice on human rebellion. God brings justice and then eventually death because of this fallen world we live in. So we may live 70 years, we see in verse 10, or perhaps 80 years. Yet even as we do, as we're told, those years, however many we have, are marked by toil and trouble. That another aspect of the consequence of the fall, life in this world, the work that we do, which is a goodness, a rightness to it, still it is difficult. It is often toil for us. So we see the massive ongoing consequences of sin. They, they mar everything in the world. They impact every day of our lives. Come to the end of verse 11, we feel the weight and the darkness of what Moses described. God is eternal, everlasting, but our lives are brief and passing. Does that mean, then, that life is meaningless? That would be a way that someone might read this and think. So why does life matter at all if it comes and goes so quickly? Does this lead to despair? Well, thankfully, this psalm does not end at verse 11. And thankfully, the biblical story doesn't end for us either. So rather than leading Moses and God's people to despair, what we're actually going to see is it actually can motivate us, compel us to consider more of the story, which can then shape a, a wise, fruitful, meaningful way of living. So see, the fallen world. But then fourth, we see the wise way. The wise way in verses 12 through the end of the psalm. We see the psalmist turn and make several requests of God in prayer. So he asks of God, do this for us. Make this so in us. So first, he says, teach us to number our days. Look at verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. So he says, I don't 
naturally do this, so God, would you help me to do this, to number my days, that from that would come wisdom. I guess all of us in the room want to be more wise. He's teaching us here that one of the pathways to wisdom is to live with an awareness of the number of our days. And by this numbering, he's praying that we'd be alert that the number is always, for every one of us, going down. Every number we have, that number is always heading to a lower number. The temptation has always been, though, to live as if we have days without number. Evidently, it was a temptation in the days of Moses. It continues to be today. The wise person fights against this common temptation to ignore the brevity of life. So this request is, is basically, God, make us humble that we would understand the limit of our days, that we would live in light of the fact that life is truly passing. So friends, we must intentionally fight this natural momentum and this this tendency towards self-deception. This is certainly a, a significant temptation for the young. The younger we are, the, the harder it is, I think, to think of life as passing or brief. But it's not only a temptation for the young. It's a potential temptation for every person, no matter the stage of life, no matter what our health is. The most common path, I think, is to think whatever the limit is of a number, we're, we're always going to aim at the higher number that there might be. I have two grandpas. My dad's side, my grandpa lived to be 99. My mom's side, my grandpa lived to be 70. So if, I wonder what you, what, which one you, you think, I probably think I'm going to be like. When I imagine how many years I will have. Of course, the 99-year-old, right? I think that's going to be me. Instead of thinking, well, why wouldn't I be a 70-year-old? Which in so many ways is just right around the corner. Are there any ways we can helpfully seek to cultivate a life where we are numbering our days? Well, one friend, I would encourage you in this. Resist our natural reflex, I think, to turn away from death. As I mentioned, it's an awkward topic. We don't like to think about it. We tend to avoid death in every way that we can. Even in our society, we, we rarely go to funerals anymore. And if we do, we typically go for the least amount of time possible. Friend, fight that tendency to avoid death. It's not easy. It's sobering. But it can help us to number our days. We'll also be helped if we, at times, give some thoughts to the end. When might my life end? What might that be like? My mom's brother uh, died about two years ago, and uh, when we'd gone to the funeral, we're back at their house, and so my mom, who's late 70s, you know, asked me to come to the other room with, with her and my dad and pulled out this big file that they'd prepared to talk about death in a way they had never talked with me about it before, about their own death, their desires, their plans for it. That reality of seeing her brother die in a relatively fast period of time stirred that for her. And that was a, a fruitful result of that, to give some thoughts to the end. Back in 2006, myself and another member of our church went to Kandahar, Afghanistan to join us and work with some long-term workers who we supported there. 
Now, things were certainly more stable then than they are now and they were before, but it still was a relatively dangerous place. There was some risk involved in that. We felt like it was a, a calculated risk, a reasonable risk, but a risk nonetheless. So in preparation for that, I sat down and thought myself about if the worst case scenario happened, what that might be like. And I wrote some notes to my wife, to my kids, to this church, sealed them up, gave them to a friend, said this is just in case. That was a painful thing to do, but actually a, a helpful thing to do, to think about the end. But the truth is, in all the years since 2006, I probably thought about my own death less across all those years than I did in just those weeks. Friends, there's wisdom in thinking about the end. It will also be helpful to, at times, talk about death with others. This shouldn't be an off-limit topic in conversation. I don't say always bring it up. But there's value in talking about we're also been given a gift, I think, in Greater Boston. It's not common everywhere, and that is there are cemeteries everywhere in our city. We could be helped by slowing down, and instead of walking by a cemetery, go spend a little time in the cemetery. Read some of those stones. Think about some of those people. So that when you do walk by, it's just a reminder of them. Many historic churches used to have a, a graveyard right next to the church, right? You had to walk through it on the way to the church. Which on one level could be sobering, but a very helpful gift to help us number our days. Friend, if you're not a Christian, we're so glad you've joined us today. You might be thinking, what a day to go to church. The guy's just going to talk about death. I recognize that. But I wonder, how do you think about numbering your days? you think much about death? The psalmist makes a second request. He, he prays, God have mercy on us, verse 13. The request is that God wouldn't give us what we deserve, but instead of giving us what we deserve, he would have pity on us. He would have compassion. He would have mercy on us. Moses and God's people had rebelled against God again and again. And God had again and again not given them what they truly deserved. He was faithful to them, even though they were unfaithful. And friends, we have an even fuller, richer picture of God's mercy than Moses did. For in the years since Moses, Jesus Christ, God the Son, has come near. Jesus, the one who created all things, came into this world, and he took on a body made of dust like us. Jesus lived a brief, passing life. As he walked the earth, friends, he showed us love and compassion, mercy and grace. He showed us what his kingdom was like. And ultimately, this sinless son of God went to the cross. There, the pinnacle of his work would be he dying in the place of rebels and sinners like us, that he might pay for our sin. He might purchase our pardon. He might pay the debt that we've accumulated and through his death and resurrection, secure a gift of salvation. And in this gift of salvation comes the boundless grace of God, the unending love of God, the depths of the mercy of God given to us through Christ. So that we as sinners wouldn't experience what we deserve, 
But through trust in Christ, we receive what we don't deserve, his righteousness given to us. Friend, if you're not a Christian, we so much want you to know of this gift that Christ has purchased. The good news of Christianity is not self-reformation. It's not earning, but it is receiving by faith. The most extraordinary gift ever provided. It can only be received by faith. It cannot be earned, must not be earned, only received. So, friend, we would love for you to consider that good news. And friend, for those who are Christians, this mercy, this compassion is yours today and tomorrow and every day of your life. So we want to number our days, live in light of the passing nature of life. But my friend, don't live your few days weighed down by condemnation and shame and guilt, for that is not yours through Christ. He's paid for your sin. So we live as forgiven sinners, transformed sinners who are being changed day by day, year by year. Friends, that's good news for us. A third request from the psalmist in verse 14 and 15, he says, Lord, satisfy us in the morning. So he loses something that we, we all experience at times inwardly, an inward hunger. He's not talking about a physical hunger here, but the level of our souls. Satisfy what is unsatisfied within. But notice what he says, satisfy us with what? He says, with your steadfast love. So what can satisfy our weary souls? It is the steadfast love of the Lord. That's what can nourish and sustain us. So for an abiding awareness of God's steadfast love, that is what sustains our souls in this life. The greatest height of that love is what I just referred to, of his cross, where out of God's great love, the very Son of God went to the cross for you and for me. Because of that, the everlasting God loves us, loves you with an eternal, unbreakable love. We are unfaithful. He is always faithful. We wander. He pursues us in our wandering. Friends of Christians, you are loved by God. That is your identity, a beloved of God. In fact, so loved that God adopts us into his own family, making us his children. Heirs of his kingdom. And that is who you are. So to find satisfaction for your soul, friend, dwell upon God's great love. In your heart and mind, think often of Christ. Pick up the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and read and, and see the life of love displayed in Christ. Talk with one another often about God's love for us. And notice the result. So satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. But the result is this. It leads to joy. That we may rejoice and be glad all our days. So treasure this steadfast love. From that flows joy, lasting, unbreakable joy. So we have a desire to wisely number our days. But that's not to lead us to some joyless existence. It's not to just sort of tick down the days, our days are few. We could be tempted to think that a person can either think about death or have a joyful life, but you can't have both. But the psalmist is saying that's not so. Instead, it's a joyful embrace of the steadfast love of the Lord that then fuels wise living in the days that we have. So as Christians, we have an abiding joy because we have an assurance 
from our king of his commitment to us and to his promises. And it's a part of his promise is that there is a day coming we will be with him forever. We'll be free of these broken down bodies. We'll have new remade bodies. There'll be no more suffering, no more sin, and no more death. We'll be with him forever. And then we will know finally perfect, complete, never-ending joy. So abiding joy now, everlasting joy to come. Friends, that's good news if you're a Christian. And notice he says this steadfast joy is to be all of our days. He doesn't say that, that you would have steadfast joy when you're not suffering. That you'll have steadfast joy on the sunny days. But no, he says all of our days. The hardest days. The most painful days. Even the dying days. Steadfast joy. But if you're not a Christian, I wonder, where do you find joy? It's not surprising that we have circumstantial joy. I think we all have that. But if and when you face difficulty, loss, suffering, is there a source of lasting joy to sustain you? A fourth request, it is, he prays, let us see God's work and God's power. He says, Look, Father, let us see your work. Let us see your power. And if you think about it, Moses had seen so much of God's power, more than almost anybody else in the history of the world. He'd seen God's powerful hand, and yet Moses is praying, Lord, would you let us see more of that? Would you let us see more of your wonderful working? And we, too, pray that prayer. God, would you let us see your work in the world? So we're praying that God would continue transforming lives. That's a miracle every time it happens. And someone hears the good news of Christ. They, they turn to Christ by faith. They find new life in him. So we're praying for more of that in this church. More people who experience the grace of God in Christ. But not just in this church, in other churches in our city. Right, God, would you do more of that in greater Boston? But not just in greater Boston, in New England and the world. Would you bring transformation for the broken? Would you bring healing? Would you bring justice and equity? So we pray for transformation here, but not only here, we pray also for uh, the work among the nations, among the Afghans and among the Turks and among the Nepalese and among the Austrians and nation after nation. We pray, Lord, would you show us your work? Would you let us see your work and your power? I invite you to join us tonight at five. We'll gather for about an hour. And one of the things we'll do is we'll pray for that. We'll pray together for God's work among some of those people. It's God's good design that we can do work globally in this room together as we pray. That leads to the last request, verse 17. And the, the prayer is this, Lord, would you establish our work? Look at verse 17. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hand upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So he's praying and we're praying that God would give us the grace that God would establish the work that we do. So our lives are brief and passing. That is true. And simultaneously, our lives have meaning. And across those days that we have, however many or few that is, we can invest our lives in things that matter. Now, it should also sober us that it is possible to spend our days on things that don't matter. Some that are utterly sinful and destructive. Probably the greater temptation for most of us is to spend our days just on things that are trivial. 
things that we know don't last. By God's grace, friends, we can spend our lives on things that matter. And one of those is to invest in the lives of other people. For we know people matter. People have eternal souls. So, so that's a beautiful, glorious work we can invest our days in. So uh, one day, sooner than we think, we all will die. But it's possible by investing our days to have an impact in this world and even in the life to come. So friends, death casts a shadow over life in this world. But the fact is we can be wise. By the grace of God, we can number our days and invest them well. And we can know joy all of our days as we're satisfied with his steadfast love. What does it look like to tangibly live this wisdom? How are Christians to think very practically about death that's coming? One, as Christians, we we should not live in a denial of death. That's a temptation for many in our society, to just ignore the reality of death. But as Christians, we understand these bodies, God made them. These bodies are passing. They will break down. So wise Christians don't live as if death won't come for us because it will for every single one of us. Matthew McCullough has written a very helpful book on death and McCullough says this. For all that it has given us, modern medicine has enabled a powerful, pervasive self-deception. Death is no less universal now than it has ever been. Death is not a disease to be eliminated. It is the inevitable end of every human life. People don't die because medicine failed them. They die because they're human. We live denying death. So don't deny death, but but also we're not to try to live forever. There's someone in our society who would want to, to work towards, can we overcome death? Is it possible just lengthen days more and more and more? Tremendous amounts of research and dollars are invested in that. But if we're not careful, life in this world becomes ultimate. But of course, for the Christian, it's not. So we embrace this life. We're thankful for the days that we have. We want to spend them well, but there is a life to come, we believe. This life is not the end. The life to come is greater more complete than we'll ever experience here and now. And eventually, in the lives of those we love and in our own lives, we will face questions of when to keep holding on and when to let go in the face of death. We find ourselves in these situations that can be so very difficult, so unclear as health declines Suddenly, sometimes, or very gradually, as disease comes or age comes and overwhelms these bodies. So individuals for themselves, families for others, face the question, do we try something else? Do we stop treatments? When do we decide we've done all that we can and let our loved one go? There's no way around. Those are weighty, painful discussions and situations. It's an area of Christian freedom as we try to decide when do we 
not try more treatments. But because of our Christian hope, we don't have to try to hold so tightly to our loved ones who know Christ. And nor when it's us, when our lives are winding down, do we have to try to hold so tightly to this And when death comes, and it does, we as Christians rightly, appropriately mourn. We weep with those who weep. Sometimes some Christians almost seem to shame others for mourning because of a misunderstanding or misapplication of the Christian hope. It is true that the Christian who has died is joyfully with God at that very moment. There is no more suffering for them, no more sin they have to wrestle with. But sometimes the implication can be, therefore, we shouldn't mourn. It's wrong to mourn because they're with Jesus. For some of the sort of church background I grew up in, that was the tone of some funerals I remember going to as a kid. But it's felt Like, at best, the wrong note was being played. There was no mourning allowed. And it left out the part that, yes, they're with Jesus, but we here are hurting. We who are left behind have broken hearts, appropriately so, because we love these people who are now gone. There's great loss for us. So, friends, we as Christians are realistic about death. So we appropriately mourn together. We weep, not for them, but for us. That's what the Christian is to do. So death, for now, is still bitter and weighty. But even as we mourn, we do not mourn as those without hope. But we do have hope. So we don't only weep, but we also think about this friend, this family member who's now with Jesus, and and that sustains us with hope. It's still, though, profoundly painful for us. So friends, we want to be a community, a church that lives wisely in the face of death, unlike the culture around us. So we we don't want to be a place that lives in denial of death. But we don't want to be a church where talking about death is off-limits. Be a church that cares for those who are in the midst of deep suffering. A church that knows how to mourn together, weep with one another when we weep. Some other related questions to touch on this morning that relate to broader kind of potential social issues. That does raise the question for Christians like. Should a Christian care about societal choices in the area of death? Or should we just kind of do our own thing among us? Or do we try to speak to cultural choices? Well, friends, as Christians, we care about everyone around us. For we understand all of them to be neighbors who we're to love. We also understand them to be bearers of God's image. And so we believe every person has value and dignity, not based on what they do now or what they ever will do, simply based on their existence. 
So the Christian worldview sees every person physically fit or enduring terminal cancer, nearing their last day, every one of them is equally valuable. So we care within, but also outside. Let's brought to a head on the topic of euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide. A guy named Vaughn Roberts is a pastor. He's written a helpful little book called Assisted Suicide. And he defines euthanasia as the killing of another person with the intention of relieving their suffering. Physician-assisted suicide defined as assistance provided by a doctor in the suicide of a patient who has chosen to end their life. Now, there are numerous countries around the world where this is legal, in fact, increasingly common. It's not currently legal in Massachusetts, uh, there was a, a bill that was narrowly defeated in 2012 that would allow for this. There are currently some bills uh, before the lawmakers that could eventually be brought forward that would allow for some practices of it. In the United States, there are 10 states where it's legal and in the District of Columbia. In New England, it's legal in Vermont and in Maine. In Vermont, in most, most places you cannot cross state lines to do it, but in Vermont you actually can. So someone from Massachusetts could travel to Vermont and legally endure physician-assisted suicide. Now, there's strong arguments given that, especially upon first hearing, can sound really compelling for this. Roberts outlined some of the arguments made, so things like this, that, that there's the potential for great pain or suffering that someone wants to avoid through this. Often the idea of individual freedom, so someone might make the arguments, it's my life, it's my death, it's my choice, it doesn't affect anyone else, they would say. An argument that sounds powerful is, is the fear of losing the quality of life. What kind of life will I have? What would be the quality of life towards the end? Or, or related to that would be dignity in dying. The thought of losing dignity as our body, as our health, as our mind declines. One real argument is the financial cost of care to your family, to your children. Or simply, some would make the argument for the health system as a whole. And upon first hearing, those can feel weighty, certainly emotionally moving. We have to press underneath, think more deeply. Author by the name of Nancy Percy writes this, Advocates for assisted suicide typically use scare tactics that tap into fear of intense pain. But in jurisdictions that have legalized assisted suicide, surprisingly, most people who choose to die are not experiencing pain or suffering. Meaning many people take this step before they've reached the step of suffering. This also discounts the reality in the incredible world we have where we really can treat suffering in profound ways with the medical advances we have. Piercy continues, she writes, secular society has successfully drilled into people's minds the idea that when we lose control and autonomy, our lives lose their value. And then she says, in states where assisted suicide is legal, some patients feel pressure to end their lives to avoid costly medical treatment. It doesn't take a genius to see that the easiest way to reduce healthcare costs is physician-assisted suicide. When human life is no longer seen to have inherent value, it will be subject to purely utilitarian calculation of costs and benefits. This week in just preparation, 
And so I'm thinking to myself, like, let's say I, I live a number of years longer, but I have a long decline that honestly takes lots of treatment at a lot of cost. I think, well, what would be the implications of that for my kids and what I would want to try to leave for them? And you can see why that could be a compelling thing, but even how it would feel like pressure when the family says that or not to the person. They would feel they should do this, that they're obligated to take this step because of the cost. So then why would a Christian oppose physician-assisted suicide? One, at the foundation, is because of what we understand to be the value and dignity of every life. And that across this course, that we believe there's a, a God who's over all, that every day from conception to the very end matters. And we have value and dignity simply because we exist. And so no matter how broken our bodies or minds become at the end, there is still dignity in that person. Roberts also talks of the dignity of interdependence, meaning our lives impact others around us. The kind of independent argument sounds strong, but it acts as if there aren't other people interrelated with us. Here we have family members, friends, neighbors, acquaintances, all who are impacted by death, would be impacted by our death. Author David Van Drunen writes this, God's creation of human beings in his own image means that we are inherently social creatures and entails a responsibility to live not as independent, isolated individuals, but as members of communities with mutual obligations. What one person does affects many others. Someone can say, it only affects me. Yeah, it's just not possible, for we are interconnected with but not only interconnected with neighbors and friends, we're also a part of a society. And what individuals do as a part of society shape a society, a culture around life and around death. Author Gilbert Mylander writes in his book on ethics, euthanasia is not simply an extension of personal autonomy. It is not simply non-intervention in another person's private choice. On the contrary, because it requires the participation of at least one other person becomes a communal act involving the larger society and giving its approval to an act of abandonment. Roberts also helpfully points to the fact that suffering is not the ultimate evil. For if we live long enough, we will almost all, unless we die suddenly, suffer. And sometimes suffer profoundly. And it is hard can be deeply painful, but suffering is not, or doesn't have to be pointless. There can be substantial good for the sufferer. Questions they wrestle with. Things they come to understand about themselves. Can be a good for those who maybe finally get to care for a sufferer they love, who'd always been so independent, so self-reliant in her children finally get to serve her in her suffering. Some related realities. As I already alluded to, elderly, chronically ill people may in time feel pressured 
at a cultural level, it begins to, to downplay the value of life. And the fact is, when this becomes law, it is never restricted more and more. It almost always grows more and more permissible. If you do research in places like the Netherlands, Belgium, Canada, that's what's happened. So initially it starts with a very narrow definition of who can do this. But it grows and it grows and it grows. To some places where a person who's depressed and says, I want to end my life. Sometimes they don't even have to be, it doesn't have to be proven they're actually depressed, but simply the request opens the door for that. Or some just saying, I, I, I don't want to live any longer. Just simply that can lead to, in some Places. So it, just, it, it, it never, never narrows, always only grows, even the ages. So it moves from only last six months of life wider and wider and wider. Friends, it's also possible that you might decide to end your life based on a wrong diagnosis. We have wonderful healthcare systems that do so much, but, but sometimes they tell us we have a, a terminal condition when it turns out to not be terminal. Sometimes restoration does come. We also can't downplay the part that this must play in the relationship of doctors and their patients. Doctors who went into medicine because they wanted to care for people, to try to bring health. And now they're being asked to, and in time, forced to do this, which is contrary to what they intend to do. Philosopher Miroslav Wolf writes this, a society in which physician-assisted suicide is legal would likely become one in which physician-assisted suicide is expected. Those diagnosed with terminal medical conditions would be seen as selfishly burdening others, their medical systems, their families in particular, if they didn't request it. Friend, there's so much more on this topic. But I would encourage you to do some research. Do some reading on what's happened in the Netherlands, in Belgium, in Canada. Even some states in the U.S. like Oregon that's had a longer period of time. And I think you'll find some weighty, daunting things. Author Gilbert Mylander writes this. The principle that governs Christian compassion is not minimize suffering. It is maximize care. Were our goal only to minimize suffering, no doubt we could sometimes achieve it most effectively by eliminating sufferers. But then we refuse to understand suffering as a significant part of human life that can have meaning or purpose. Our task, therefore, is not to abandon those who suffer, but to maximize care for them as they live out their own life story. Our continuing task is not to eliminate sufferers, but to find better ways of dealing with suffering. On the one hand, we ought not to choose death or aim at death, but on the other hand, Neither should we act as if continued life were the only or even the highest good. It is not a God, but a gift of God. Allowing to die is permitted. Killing is not. And within these limits lies the sphere of our freedom. Because that's where we will often live. How wisely do we walk forward and face I do want to say, friend, if any of you here today have today or recently had thoughts of suicide, friend, we want you to know you matter to us. We care for you. 
We would count it a privilege if you would let us know that you're having those thoughts. So please speak with me, speak with someone else today. We want to care for you in that. Christians ultimately have concerns about these issues, not because we don't care about others, but precisely because we do care about our neighbors, because we do care about our society, because we do care about the shape and the future so friend, let's pray that we can live wisely, aware of the reality of death, of people who endure suffering, who care deeply for sufferers, who mourn the painful loss of death, but who do so with hope, and who, by the way we relate to death, can hold out a different picture through our church in this city to those around us. Let's pray that by God's grace, that would be so.